Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. This is our last podcast of the year, and it is tradition now since it's been three years in running that we do at the end of the year and at the beginning of the year, some topics around planning, planning, and also getting yourself ready to have the best year ever. They kind of go hand in hand. So today I'm here with my absolute favorite podcast guest. And for those of you who've listened before, you know that it is my husband and law partner, Mark Worthington. Greetings. Hello, Mark. So good to have you here. Thank you. So we get together to talk about updating your plan or starting a plan if you don't have one yet, because traditionally... Mark has a certain expertise in our practice, and I have the other side of the expertise. So combined together, we have you know quite a force to be reckoned with, and it is to benefit all of you. So Mark is my tax and trust guy. He is the person who is up on all the regulations, the rules, the case law. Me, I am more in touch with what is going on in the disability community and public benefits. And so we want to combine those two things to bring together a fantastic plan for your family and yourself. So at this time of year, we want to take a look at, you know, what do I need to be aware of in order to make sure that my plan still works for me? It's great when you get that estate plan done. Maybe it's got some disability planning in it. Hopefully it does. And you feel so wonderful about it. And many attorneys will give you this pretty binder or box and it's got your documents in it and it's, you know, robust and it, it just looks nice. And what do people do with that, Mark? Put it on a shelf. They do. They put it on a shelf. They put it in a drawer. They put it, you know, somewhere where they know where it is and they tell somebody, you know, well, it's there if you ever need it. But unfortunately, a lot of times people just don't look at it again for years and years and years. And things change. There are typically three things that you really need to be looking at when you pull that plan out and you, you know, brush off all the dust or blow on it to get all the dust off of it. You need to be looking at you know, what's changed about my assets or my stuff, everything I own? You know, what does my financial picture look like? The second thing is, you know, how am I doing? What's new or different about me or my family, my people, you know, and the people that I've chosen to be part of this plan? Yeah, not just the people that you love and want to benefit, but the people that you have trusted and given put in charge right trustees and healthcare agents agents under a power of attorney and blah 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 and then the third thing is has there been any changes in the law usually when we do this review with people it it, there's usually not anything significant that really most of the time most of the time what drives people back is stuff on quote their side of the conference room table right not on ours it's rare in fact honestly changes in the law what's driven 
us to reach out is every single time it has been changes in the way that retirement plans are treated in how they interact with trusts. 2002, 2020, and now 2022. All right. So we are going to dig into that last because that is kind of a little bit of a heavy subject. So what are you looking for when you review your estate plan? I think the most important thing, Mark, and maybe you'll agree, is that people understand what their plan actually says. Mm -hmm. So often we'll sit down with people and they'll tell us, well, you know, my plan is doing X, Y, Z. I'm leaving X to my daughter and Y to my son. And, you know, my cousin is going to be the trustee and in charge of the will. And when we actually look at their plan, it's not always correct. And in two respects, one is the what we think of as the estate plan. The documents that the attorney produces are the, the client's memory isn't quite right. And, you know, believe me, I get that, right? I mean, I, my memories, you know, of, of other things I've done <laughs> in a non-estate planning context, like what the mechanic told me about the car, you know, a year ago or something, right. I don't remember. Right. But um, the other thing is, is that there are many components to an estate plan besides what the attorney drafts, death beneficiary designations on retirement plans and insurance. And that may be completely at odds with the estate planning document. Yes. That's why we're going to talk about that today. So what is the best way to start understanding the plan that you have or refreshing your memory with the plan that you have? In our drafting practice, we generally provide people with a very robust, what we call our owner's manual. The state plan owner's manual, yes. Which is a summary of the documents and the plan, but it also goes over a whole bunch of other yeah. important details that you need to know, including a full list of when it's time to come back and see your attorney. Not every planner is going to give you that, you know, robust summary and instruction letter, basically. Um, and for us, our doc, our owner's manual document can be anywhere from 15 to 30 pages long. Mm -hmm. But it is to replace you needing to read through hundreds of pages of trust documents for some of our folks. Some folks are going to get just kind of a, a cover letter with a summary. Almost every planner is going to give you some sort of a summary document. Start there. If you don't have that summary document, what's a good way to start, Mark? If you don't have the summary document, do you think they should just try to read through the documents and pick out the That's salient points? really hard. Um, I don't know what I would recommend. I would defer to your judgment on that. So, you know, it's possible that if you're facing a challenge of not really understanding your plan, you might want to schedule an appointment to review things with the planner that you have. If you feel comfortable and confident with the planner that you have, it's great to continue that relationship. If you, you know, didn't really feel a bond or don't really feel comfortable or confident that they're the right person for you, maybe this is time to try somebody new. Have them do a review. It's probably the best, you know, small amount of money you're going to spend 
to have your documents reviewed and to have a meeting, a summary meeting to talk about what's in my plan. Yeah, you don't I, even have to get to what do I want to do next, but like just what's there. Yeah. Hard experience shows that you, I mean, you, we, we kind of expect, Oh, this is written in English. Therefore we should be able to understand it. Um, but the, the truth is, is that there's a lot of stuff, even if the documents are striving to be written in quote, plain English, um, uh, it, there's just so much there that you can not understand, right? Because you don't have years of experience in trust and estates and tax and so forth. And I'm sorry, but that's just the truth. You know, I sometimes read through documents and I'm not the expert that Mark is, but I've been looking at this stuff for a couple of decades, almost three. I hate to admit that. But well, you graduated law school at age 35. I mean, no, yeah, right, no, that's not right. You you graduated law school at what? Five? Right. Age five. There you it. go. Sorry. See, he's trying I, to I pay me a compliment. I was trying to, but I messed it up. <laughs> This is why I love him. So, you know, when I read documents, sometimes I find them confusing too. They don't always say what you expect. So this is the best first step that you can take. Just understanding what have I got? But Mark mentioned something about beneficiary designations. And I think the first thing that I want to talk about is, and if you are like me and you love a checklist, Write yourself a little checklist of things to do. This is number two. The first one was pull out your draft, your pull, pull out your signed documents and review those documents and make sure that you understand what's in them. The second thing that I want you to do is take a look at your assets. Make a really good list of what you own. And I'm not just talking about cash in the bank, although that is super important. It's really important to know what accounts do I have? What's in them? What's the nature of them? Is this a retirement plan? Is this, uh, you know, non-retirement money? Do you have some kind of, um, you know, funky things like ownership in a small business, or maybe you get stock options, although those are becoming less and less common from your company. Things like that are important to list out. And if you have a financial advisor, and frankly, most people need them. Anybody with a disability, um, you know, disability issue in their family and in their plan should probably be talking with a financial advisor. Granted, there are some advisors out there who, if you don't have $5 million in investable assets, they won't talk to you. But there are so many people out there who are just good planners who would love to meet with you and help you on your journey. If you cannot find a good planner who really understands families like ours, please reach out to me, DM me. I'm happy to send you some names. You do not have to have a planner in your state to be able to help you. So that's an important thing. So you want to make a list of your assets and your stuff. What real estate do you have? What value do you think it's at right now? What are your mortgages and liabilities? Do you have a lot of credit card debt? Do you have parent loans for your student who's in college? Do you have savings that have been set aside? 
are you expecting an inheritance sometime soon? You know, are your parents, you know, ready to go? Um, what is coming in the future? Don't forget, some people have property in other countries. That's a very big deal. That is really hard to plan for. Absolutely. And, you know, we do care about the the things that are tangible, like that coin collection that you really care about or your baseball cards or snow globe that you that your two kids are going to fight over <laughs> so much so much i mean you know that set of christmas ornaments that's been handed down for generations things that are not worth much on the open market but are so meaningful in your family those are the kinds of things that you really want to list out as well because you want to make sure that if it's important to you or someone else in your plan, that you are really taking care of it. Yeah. I mean, don't want to intimidate people. You do not, do not need to list every single item of stuff you can touch in your house. That's right. The TV, the couch, the, the, the dust balls under the couch. None of, you know, no, just the stuff that you really, that matters to you that some particular person gets that thing. We have had so many instances in our practice where somebody has had that grandfather clock, the bench that, you know, great, great grandfather actually hand carved the Tiffany lamp. That was the one nice thing that their mother had. Those are the kinds of things that people really care about. So Mark, why don't we talk about some of the, tough things though. Can you talk a little bit about beneficiary designations and what those look like? Well, beneficiary does it some kinds of assets, always life insurance and always retirement plans have death beneficiary designations on the, the various forms. It may be part of the application form. It may be a separate form, whatever. The death beneficiary designation says where stuff goes when you die. Um, and it rules. So your will, your revocable trust, whatever, could say everything goes, you know, whatever, equally to my three kids. If the death beneficiary designation says the Red Cross or mom or whatever, if mom survives you, mm-hmm. then mom gets it and it bypasses your plan. So that would be life insurance. Well, life insurance and retirement plans are the big ones. An annuity Some, contract. I'm sorry. And yeah, plain uh, non-retirement annuity contracts as well. Some brokerage accounts, bank accounts, etc., may have, or excuse me, excuse me, savings bonds as well, may have things that are death beneficiary designations, but they're worded a little differently. So. A death beneficiary designation on a brokerage account might say TOD, transfer on death. A bank account might say POD, pay on death. Bizarrely, some bank accounts will say ITF, in trust for. It's not a trust. That's not a trust. No, it, but ITF, in trust for, is a death beneficiary designation. Also, if you have jointly held property, which raises a lot of other issues, if uh, you are survived by one or more of the other joint tenants, passes to them, it doesn't go by your estate planning documents. So these are all things that bypass your careful thinking and planning in your estate planning documents. 
Sometimes there's good reasons for it. More often than not, no. And so that's death beneficiary designations. So if you're looking at your stuff and you're making a list, it's important to list out not just this account number at this in financial institution is about this much value. You need to understand who are the owners? Mm -hmm. What is listed on that statement? Is it Jack and Jill? Right. Or is it Jack then Jill? Is it um, and who's the beneficiary and another of that important account, point if any. about death beneficiary designations is this. Suppose that you list uh, you know, primary uh, your spouse, uh, secondary or contingent, however the form puts it, um, you know, whatever. I'm just going to pick you know, like my niece or whatever or my only child, whatever it is. And you're the last one standing. All right. So all of your death beneficiaries die. Where's your stuff go now? Yeah. Well, depending upon the nature of the form and how well it's done, it may provide the answers for us right there on the form. Sometimes uh, it doesn't. And we have to look at the default provisions of the contract, the life insurance contract, the retirement plan contract. Uh, that's rarely apparent where that is. And sometimes it requires quite a bit of digging. Um, I dislike all of this. To me, more, way more often than not, I prefer all of these things to be funneled through the revocable trust of the planner, of the person doing the planning. There are exceptions. Other attorneys have slightly different views, but that's my, that's my preference. So if I'm sitting back and listening to you, what I'm hearing, Mark, is that if the Revocable Living Trust, which is a common planning tool for just about any family. If they, if that trust is the beneficiary of, or potentially an owner of, depending, um, of certain assets, even contract assets, then you only have to keep updating your Revocable Living Trust mm -hmm. to change your wishes from this beneficiary to that beneficiary or this percentage to that percentage. And it's also the case that you, know, you get people who, oh, I want this CD to go to this person. I want that retirement plan to go to that person, this and that. And that's just how they think. What happens is, is that those assets get imbalanced over time. Oh. So that, oh, you know, you wind up spending that. So you cashed in, you spent the CD, and now that person doesn't get anything. Or this this account that you had designated for this other person blows up in value to a huge amount. Now they get more than you really intended. I know. And eventually, I mean, ultimately the person who owns all this stuff doesn't keep up with all this. It's too hard. It is. And then the plan that they really had in mind doesn't really happen. If it all goes to the Rev Trust, then it can. By the way, I just want to mention, you know, things that we're saying, I mean, this is a, a a broadcast that's for nationwide and in many respects sometimes of international interest. Um, there's regional differences. For example, the last time I looked in the New York City metropolitan area, uh, there's much more planning by attorneys via wills without revocable trust as opposed to using revocable trust. For very good reason. Well, for whatever, it doesn't matter what the reason is, just don't be surprised if 
you know, your attorney and so on, you know, doesn't exactly do things exactly the way that I would or something like that. That's okay. You know, so uh, don't get, oh, don't get too, like, oh, I heard on this podcast, you got to use a rev trust. You know? mm-hmm. Trust your, find a good planner and then trust them. Oh, I agree with that. We're going to mention that at the end. Um, a financial planner too can help with what we call a marshalling of the assets, getting your arms around all the assets and understanding the contract rules and the beneficiary designations and the ownership. And yeah, real inventory. They would really like to understand the entire picture so that they can help you develop a plan that works for you over time. Like all people on your team, you know, we call that our circle of care in our family here, um, everyone on your team is going to work together, ideally, to share all the pieces of the puzzle. So as you're looking at your assets and your stuff, and you get your, you know, you collect your, um, your sheet, your little checklist there of all of the things, some things may pop out at you. Oh, wow, you know, our assets have grown, even though we had a bad U.S. Um, stock market this year that fluctuated quite a bit. and Many things are still down. Overall, if you haven't looked at things for five years, seven years, 10 years, you might notice a lot of growth. Not only have you been saving, yay you. That's paying, awesome. Paying down mortgages. Yeah. Real estate prop, uh, values appreciating. Maybe you've gotten your kids out of college and launched and God bless you if you have. And um, please don't forget. So it's the full untaxed value of retirement plans that's includable in your estate at death, the, your taxable estate, and the full that death benefit of life insurance, even if it's term life insurance with zero cash value. Now, in many states, many people, it's not going to matter because the federal estate tax exemption is so high. Right. It's uh, going to be 13 point something million in 2023. It is scheduled to drop to about half of that amount for deaths uh, in 2026 and later. Um, but about 14 states have some form of inheritance or estate tax mm-hmm. with differing exemption amounts. Our own state of Massachusetts is one of the, um, the least pleasant. Yeah. With a an exemption of only one million dollars, everything above that is subject to Massachusetts estate tax. So, although you can have a financial advisor from anywhere, it really behooves you to have a an estate planner oh, you, in your state. You absolutely need an attorney um, uh, who works, yeah, under your state laws. So now I want to move on to looking at your people, your people and yourself, because Mark started to mention that a bit. Um, First of all, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, what's changed about you? How are you doing? <laughs> have you, you know, changed jobs? Do you have a lot more stress in your life? Are you experiencing any health issues? Have you moved to another state? Have you moved to another state? Are you straddling two states? So many of our clients do that, um, you know, and it, it it's... When you're looking at how to plan, you are not just looking at tax implications. A lot of people really get confused about that and think only in terms of tax rules. 
a lot of times tax rules are not a primary concern Many in times. planning. And increasingly these days, the to the extent that we are caring about taxes, it's much more about income tax issues than it is about estate tax issues. So if you and your spouse are doing okay, great. But maybe you've had a divorce. Maybe there's been a death in the family. As you're looking at what's going on with you, I really want you to jot down some notes. And this is the point where you really should start writing down the questions that you have. Being prepared when you go to see your planner, whether it's your financial planner, your estate planner, your tax advisor, will be so helpful in just gathering the thoughts and ideas that you need to make good decisions about your plan. So start thinking about, okay, so I've gotten divorced. I haven't redone my plan. What concerns me about that? You know, was it an amicable divorce? Eugh, I don't know. There are not, there are not that many of those. Um, but what about the kids? Since we last talked or since we last saw our planner, have our kids grown up? Are they married now? Do they have their own kids? You know, maybe your story is unfortunately like mine. My child passed away. I had to redo my plan. Oh, it was brutal just facing that yet in yet another way. So have you lost people in your life? Look at who you have listed in your plan mm -hmm. to be your personal representative or executor of your will, your trustee for yourselves, for your kids. How have you planned for your kids? Did you do outright distributions, but now one of them is maybe not doing so great, or they've married somebody that you, you know, really are concerned about. Um, Mark loves to call those the Spawn of Satan. Spawn of Satan, <laughs> or the outlaws, some people call them, instead of the in-laws. And two, you know, a lot of times what I find when I'm talking to somebody who's been doing their plan after a while, somebody they named maybe as a healthcare agent or a successor healthcare agent or whatever, or an agent under a power of attorney, somebody to help them during their lives if they're not doing right. well. Or a trustee like Things just kind of faded over time. Right. They haven't really talked to them that much in the last five, 10 years, and they're just not feeling the same connection anymore. Yeah, they don't Even have that. that little thing can be grounds for, well, maybe we change this up. Or maybe, you know what? I shouldn't let that relationship die. That's right. I'm going to get back in touch with them. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. And this is a good excuse to talk to people, too. Mm -hmm. Um. Also, you know, people have their own issues, you know, maybe when you named them previously, they were doing great, but maybe now they're having their own health issues, yeah. or maybe they have their own worries. Maybe one of their kids is not doing so great, and or, they're just overwhelmed. You know, we've had sad things with adult children, you know, like for reasons that we can't even figure out. There's been a falling out with the parent, and, you know, the parent doesn't want to disinherit them or anything, but they don't want them in charge anymore if the parent needs help. Maybe your kids don't get along as well as they used to. That happens a lot too, uh -huh. unfortunately, more than we would like. And you might not want to have Susie be the executor because you know that your boys 
will be really resentful. And that might have been appropriate when they were teenagers or young adults to put them in those roles. But now you're looking at things a little differently. And maybe it's time to think about a professional or a neutral third I'm party. I'm telling you, Annette, I, over the years, I mean, people have a, a very strong propensity to want to name kids or other family members and so forth. And all of these so-called fiduciary positions, trustee, executor, agent under a power of attorney and so forth. Um, Increasingly over the years, I have just concluded that uh, there's many, many, many more instances that they really need somebody else, a neutral party, maybe a professional. Uh, people hate that because oh, they you know, don't want to have them paid anything. But a lot of times it's really the better way to go. Yeah. It's a conversation to it's, have with absolutely. your plan and with your circle of care. So um, just for a minute, I want to talk about the disabled adult children. I know that term adult children is kind of weird, but disabled adult children require special consideration in your plan. And I have seen, you know, fairly often that the person that you thought would be a great guardian when your child was a minor has not really grown to understand them and understand their challenges, doesn't really spend time with them. Maybe they're not the right person anymore. You've grown your circle of care around that child. And now you have other people in their life that you know you can count on who just get it and who your child connects with. And this is where I also want to say that as you have a child who's become an adult, their voice and their choice in these matters is very important. It becomes a conversation with them. And I know that not all of your loved ones can have a conversation with you about this. My Elizabeth was that person, you know, I wouldn't be able to ask her, oh, who would you want to be your guardian? You know, who would you want to live with? Who would you want to help you? But I could get, I got to know who she favored and who she was most comfortable with. And by being a really good observer, I started to be able to list out who those special people were in her life and who she would choose if she could tell me. So this is where we have to do a little bit of extra sleuthing, if you will, and figure out, you know, I would want Uncle Bob because he's really great with money to be the trustee. But the trustee, their most important job is listening to your child, your adult child, and helping them have the best life possible. Which you can is, hire investment managers. Yeah. <laughs> and how to have the best life possible is on the spending side, not on the investments. That's right. The distribution decisions are the most important ones when it comes to a special needs trust. So that trustee of that special needs trust and that guardian, those are decisions that I can almost guarantee you will change over time. So it's really important to take a look at that, to understand your child's choice and what their voice would be in the situation. And also to think about not necessarily burdening your other kids, because as they've gotten to be adults, 
they have their own lives, their own family. Maybe they've moved away. Maybe they have a very demanding career. Maybe they have really like faded away um, and don't have much of a relationship. But I like to put it that it's great to free your other children to be your disabled child's brother or sister, right? not some other jobs to give them. And much too much to go into here, but there are lots of ways that you can have them in the plan. Yeah. Um, giving oversight, mm -hmm. opting in instead of being, you know, told this is what you're doing. If you ask them, our, all our good kids are going to say, of course, mom and dad, of course, I'll do that. Once you're gone, they are not going to want to give that up. They're going to feel obligated, mm -hmm. even if it's a lot for them. So it's just another thing to consider. Your plan your choice. You know your family better than we do, but we're here to guide you and, and give you some things to think about. And you know, one of the things, so, you know, estate planning, if you can't tell studio audience is a, uh, it's a, it's a process, not one photograph that you take and it's forever done. And, um, but so is the rest of your life, right? I mean, the plans you made at age 30 for what was going to be your life at age 40, I mean, one thing I always know is if I plan for something 10 years from now, that's the one thing I know isn't going to be. <laughs> Other things <laughs> are going to happen and so forth. Well, but then you may wonder, well, wait a minute, you know, like I'm working hard to keep changing my estate plan and keeping it up to date with my family and my desires and all this. But when I die, I can't do that anymore. But things are going to keep changing, right? Well, good estate plans have ways to build in flexibility true, true. But without a, without ways for the plan to spin out of control either so just bear that in mind we do have ways that we approach these things um, so that um, we can take that into account in the future even if you can't be there to direct what those changes should be so this brings us to our last point have there been any changes in the law? Well, usually the answer to that is no. But the last couple of years, we've been tracking SECURE, the SECURE Act. And it has evolved since we first started talking about it in 2019. Um, we have our final regulations. No, we have proposed regulations. We have our final proposed regulations. <laughs> not, that's not <laughs> This is why Mark's in charge of these things and I am not. So where are we now? Something important just recently happened. All right. So here we go. So first of all, I really want to just go back and the overview business here. People are always thinking about, you know, what about when the law changes and all that? And occasionally there's a few things that are somewhat minor, like, um, you know, uh, the state of Massachusetts, for example, got a new Homestead Act in the year 2011, which was helpful in a number of ways. But it was also something where, you know, maybe we want to redo a few things just but it was very limited in scope, just having to do with the Homestead Declaration and so forth. People are always wondering about changes in the estate tax law, this, that and the other thing. Um, I'll tell you, I've been doing this for darn near 30, uh, 30 <laughs> years. And 
I've never had to make any changes based on the many, many changes in both state and federal estate tax law. Why? Because you can kind of anticipate a lot of these things. And so you draft it in a way to anticipate them. And unless the, those laws just really completely change their entire structure, uh, you know, you don't, you're not going to need to go back and change your plan. Um, as I said, really, the only major things that have happened all have to do with retirement plans and how they interact with trust. 2002, we got our first set of final regulations, lots of unexpected changes. 2020 came the SECURE Act, really brief recap. Uh, since retirement plans were invented by Congress in the 1970s, IRAs and 401ks and 403bs and so forth, for the most part, what you were able to do is you could leave at, at your death, you could leave these retirement plans to beneficiaries or to trust for beneficiaries um, and have the benefit and, and basically have the required minimum distributions stretch out over their life expectancies. Trusts had to be drafted carefully in that regard. We won't get into all of that. And then in 2020, Congress decided we're kind of tired of waiting for our money. Uh, so tell you what, no more lifetime distributions for your beneficiaries. Instead, everything has to come out of the plan within 10 years after your death. Um, have a nice day. Um, so that not only accelerated that, that you, you, you couldn't have these plans grow over somebody's lifetime, which is more than just deferred tax. It's real more after tax net present value money for your family, a lot more. Um, but it also often shoved the money into higher tax brackets than they would otherwise be. It was really not nice. They did make some exceptions um, of, for that 10 year um, plan. The two major ones that I will mention, one is surviving spouses. And the other one was uh, for disabled or chronically ill individuals. Yay. Um, <laughs> however, uh, their good intentions in the first draft of the SECURE Act, which almost passed, uh, it passed the House 417 to 3 and got hung up on the, in the Senate on a technicality. That gave the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys um, Tax Steering Committee the, a, a chance to write to um, Congress, uh, to the Ways and Means Committee uh, of the House and say, you know, beg pardon, but, and we appreciate all the nice things that you've done here for disabled and chronically ill, but the disabled and chronically ill usually need assets left to them in trust. And if it's left to them in trust under the current regulations and the way that you've written the SECURE Act, they're going to be under the 10-year rule. So Congress uh, got busy um, and rewrote it and included the ability to have special needs trusts if they are drafted appropriately. And there's no way for me to tell you if yours is drafted appropriately. But with, with a, just a few certain constraints, um, a special needs trust uh, uh, can uh, avail itself of the lifetime required minimum distributions that retirement plans always had for the SECURE Act. So that's really spiffy and awesome. awesome. We had proposed regulations came out finally for the SECURE Act in February 24th, 2022, that's this year. Those proposed regulations, by and large, 
although quite complicated, in 275 pages. Yes. Were really good. They did us a lot of really good stuff. However, one of the things that still hung on was this. More than most parents, the parents of disabled children very much are inclined to name, at, say their child dies and there's no other, um, say, say the parents have no other descendants. Um, they love to see anything that may remain in the trust at their child's death go to one or more charities particularly charities that have some connection with their child's disability. Maybe a program or a school or something the child attended. Uh, maybe um, uh, a charity having to do with the, uh, the, the disability that the child has is aligned. Well, if you named a charity to take immediate on the death of that disabled child, the special needs trust for the child would not qualify for the for the lifetime required minimum distributions. Am I being clear so far? Yes. Okay. Well, all right. And for many people, this is not the first time they're hearing this, but it's a good refresher because it's complicated. So you need to layer on that knowledge. So Congress for a couple of years has been working on what's, been called Secure 2.0, and it's why did they name it that? Because it's the second version <laughs> of the Secure Act, I guess. But it's not really. So now I'm about to say some very simple things that even your kindergartner should be able to understand. So uh, the House and the Senate um, passed the Omnibus Appropriations Act of 2023, and it's on its way for the president's signature. That's about 4,800 pages of tax code. Okay, that's not that bad. And then within that is Division T, 400, a little over 400 pages, and that is Secure 2.0, and they actually helpfully named it in Subdivision T, dash, Secure 2.0. Mm -hmm. um, at Section 337, <laughs> here's what they did. Okay, I'll stop being a jerk. Don't you, um, don't you love how he knows all these things? So here's what they did. They basically got rid of that. And so now you can have your special needs trust. So we're talking about third party supplemental needs trust, not those D4A trusts or, or over 93 trusts, sometimes they're called whatever, where there's a Medicaid payback and it's designed to be funded by the assets of the disabled child. This is like an inheritance trust. This is where your money's gonna go when you die, when you die, and it's going to be for the benefit of your disabled child, and it's not gonna be a trust that is um, considered an available asset for, you know, SSI or Medicaid, things like that. So um, if you have a trust that is one of these third-party special needs trusts, and it's got the appropriate little tweaks to it that make it um, uh, qualify for the lifetime RMDs, required minimum distributions after you, after your death, if you name that uh, that third-party S&T either directly or through your revocable trust um, as the beneficiary, you can now have at the death of that child, that disabled child, anything that may happen to remain, which might not be anything, but if there's anything there, it can now 
go to a charity. If you still, want. If, yeah, if you if want. You want. Two restrictions on that. That charity, it can, it can go to basically any charitable organization that you might normally think of. There's two exceptions. One is it can't be, sorry, ready? A type three supporting organization. If you have a supporting organization in your plan, in your life, which you probably don't have unless you're a little bit more on the well-to-do side than on the just scrape and buy side. Um, it's probably not a type one or type two. It's probably a type three. So if you have a supporting organization, that won't work if to name it in, in that position. The other is, and this is very common, and this is not just restricted to the very wealthy or anything like that. A lot of people have these. That's a donor advised fund. So you can't name a donor advised fund in that position. But that makes sense. But you know, it's not an official charity because you never actually well, have to give the money away. Uh, no, you do. I mean, the money that I mean, goes. It, the 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 issue there is that that the just Congress is a little bit sensitive, or Treasury, somebody who writes this stuff is a little bit sensitive to organizations, charitable organizations, where they they have this vague sense that the. Um, donor just has a little bit, or the donor's family has a little bit, quote, too much control, mm -hmm. even though it has to go to a charity of that, uh, ultimately. So no type three supporting orgs, no donor advised funds. Otherwise, pretty much the field is open and you can name, you know, you can name and just about any kind of charity or, or uh, that, that you would like most of our benefit, uh, excuse me, clients who want to name a charity at the tail end of their estate plan uh, are, uh, they, they have in mind the organizations that they are interested in. Yeah. And I mean, just to chime in here and Mark, you did this brilliantly. Thank you. It, it really does come up more often than you would think. Of course, people want their other children and grandchildren yeah. to benefit from their estate. But there are so many people who have such gratitude for the organizations that have supported their family and their loved one for decades, sometimes mm -hmm. decades. So we'll have, and like I said, well, I, I just was going to give an oh, example yeah, of, um, you know, last week we talked about charitable giving with um, two guests here. Um, and it was really eye-opening for me because there are a lot of little ways to do things and to you know, start small. You don't have to be wealthy in order to think about being charitable. You know, um, So I know for our family, we have a few charities that we really, really love to give to. And we don't always have a lot, but doing it in a planned way does make it much easier to manage. So anyway, here's the thoughts. So that really concludes the three, actually four issues. The first one being that you just got to start with a review of your plan. And then we talked about reviewing your assets, your stuff, looking at you know, what changes have happened with yourself, your spouse, your family, the people that you've selected in the roles that you want them to take in your plan, and then 
what changes have there been in the law? Um, and so although we didn't touch on everything that has changed and updated regarding the SECURE Act, for the most part, we hit on the thing that we thought that our audience would find most important yeah, for them I mean, in there, their life. There's plenty of, of I'd, I'd love to spend, you know, an hour or more talking about security Of plans. course he would. <laughs> um, but no, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in it. Um, so, but mostly it's just really important that you get to your planner. Yep. And I wanted to mention that we are rolling out, hooray, our special needs planning course. Those of you who have been listening for a while, you may um, recall that I started doing some online on-demand uh, courses for our audience. And I have added to our Special Needs Academy account, multiple versions of some smaller topics, um, for example, ABLE accounts and, and so forth. And then those are very affordable. And then what we call our master classes. So we had our transition planning masterclass that we have kind of rebranded and renamed because it was much more all encompassing than just about transition. And that's our special needs advocacy and planning masterclass. But now we are rolling out a masterclass that really digs deep into the special needs planning aspect, all of the things that we've talked about today and so much more. There isn't an accompanying coaching program that goes with that, unlike the special needs advocacy and planning masterclass. But this is the course that comes with a really great workbook, a course book as well. But the workbook is where you're going to go through and start keeping track of your asset list and your, you know, the people in your life, your letter of intent, your circle of care, all of those things. But even more importantly than that, you're going to write down all your questions you're going to be so prepared when you meet with your planner, whether you work with our special needs law group or whether you work with someone in North Dakota or Iowa or Kansas or Virginia or Florida, you are going to be ready. You're going to have all of your thoughts, your issues all laid out, and you're going to really understand the basics of the plan. And therefore, you're going to be in a much better position. Can't tell you how many times people have come to us. And I know I said this at the beginning of the podcast. They don't really understand their plan and they don't understand what it's doing for them. Nobody's saying that you need to take a crash law course. You know, you don't have to have a law degree. But it is important that you understand the basic mechanics of the plan that you have. You're going to feel so much more in control and so much more comfortable. So I hope that you'll check it out. You can go to teachable.com and look up Special Needs Academy, or you can go to our website at specialneedscompanies.com. Mark and I are so glad you could join us today. Mark, do you have any last thoughts? Yes. And that is this. Estate planning isn't just for dead people. <laughs> and I say that because it's funny, right? Because dead people can't plan. But what I mean by that is a lot of times, even though it's really important, even though we love people to, to pieces and we want to make sure they're okay when we're gone, 
Who wants to think about life insurance? Who wants to think about estate planning? That's for dead people, right? It's also for living people because who's going to take care of that person who can't take care of themselves if you can't take care of you, if you're disabled, if you're too sick, etc. So you need that planning in place too. So estate planning is for the living. I love that. Thank you. Well, I hope you all had wonderful winter holiday season. We, uh, from our family to your family, are wishing you the most blessed new year in 2023. And I hope that you'll join me for next week's podcast, which is talking about how to make 2023 the best year ever. I thought it was about the other 447 pages of the Secure 2.0 Act. Uh, maybe sometime in April Aww. we'll get to that. <laughs> okay. But we really do wish you many blessings and much love from our family to yours. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.